This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. I'm Cassandra Baldini. This is a Financial Standard podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. In Australia, income and financial stress levels have been firmly established as crucial social detriments of health and well-being. However, improving our population's financial literacy remains a significant challenge. This is specifically true for Australia's Indigenous population. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, more than half of Indigenous Australians surveyed reported high levels of financial stress and a lack of financial security, while 39% reported that their households had days without money for basic living expenses in the last 12 months. There is an organisation that aims to enhance financial literacy within Indigenous communities and provide support for better outcomes, and that's First Nations Foundation. Today, we are joined by the Chief Executive and proud Wiradjuri man, Phil Usher. Phil, thank you so much for joining me. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Can you give me a little bit of background on what First Nations Foundation is and what it intends to do? Yeah, so First Nations Foundation, uh, we're financial education, well-being uh, trainer, a registered charity, and pretty much self-explanatory from that, we run financial education sessions for uh, communities right across Australia. Uh, our focus is, well, our vision is achieving financial prosperity for First Nations people. So that word prosperity is very deliberate in what we do. It's not, it's not focusing so much on the people that are in. Uh, the severity of, of financial hardship. Uh, we find that people experiencing that generally need a lot of one-on-one support and usually the help from a financial counsellor. We generally work well with uh, people that have got some kind of income, whether it's full-time job, part-time job, and a bit of support system. Um, we go through and deliver uh, our financial education training on how to kind of take what you have and to make that into something that's going to last uh, a few generations. Speaking of that training, um, Financial Wellness Week is one of your main initiatives and sees you go out to all locations across Australia and engage with communities. Can you tell us what are some of the biggest gaps you're identifying through that outreach program? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, some access to services, depending on how regional or remote you are. You know, instances where uh, you get a letter from your bank and you're told that you have to respond by X date and it's already out of date by the time people receive it. Uh, or what seems like a really simple transaction is a six, seven hour drive to the closest bank. So, um, you know, providing financial services and, and organisations in the finance sector uh, to those communities um, just allows them to kind of do, uh, you know, the basic business that kind of you and I um, take for granted. So uh, mm. we find the the access and the other parts, just even when we're not in remote and it's more regional or even urban, just a, a place where they're comfortable, uh, people are comfortable to go to uh, just talk about these services, particularly government and the history with uh, First Nations people and government going into government organisations. Uh, we find if we can connect them to a place that you know, just uh, more culturally safe and familiar, uh, they're more likely to to go along and, and take advantage of the services. Well, let's talk about superannuation specifically now. Pre-COVID and before you launched the Financial Wellness Week initiative, First Nations Foundation ran the Big Super Day Out. And through that program, you had success in helping 1,600 Indigenous Australians reconnect with 24 million in super. 
When we last spoke, you said the biggest issue with super is it's not fit for purpose for all Indigenous Australians. And you provided a few reasons for the disparity, focusing on the differences in life expectancy and preservation age between Indigenous and non-Indigenous individuals. There are also issues with identification and, of course, the added trauma of stolen wages. So with all of that in mind, could you elaborate on some potential solutions that could enhance the equity of the superannuation system? Yeah, I think looking at the the architecture of the the system itself, and as you touched on, you know, preservation age at the moment is 60 or 65 if you fully retire. Um, Life expectancy for Aboriginal male is 71. So immediately, it's a a bit of a difficult sell um, for First Nations people, not not confident that they're ever going to be able to uh, access or enjoy um, their retirement savings. So I think shifting that um, in in some way w- would be priority number one. And I don't think it's a matter of saying, uh, you know, all, all First Nations people can access this superannuation at age um, 54, for example. I think having a tiered approach, um, so, you know, we're not giving up on the closing the gap of the, the life expectancy. We'd certainly want to see it phased out eventually where um, that, does close and, and the um, living a lot longer, and, and one of the concepts that I've toyed with is anything race based is is very difficult to get across the line. So I think you you could run it postcode based. Um, you know, there are certain postcodes in in regional and remote areas that had high for, uh, indigenous populations. I think we can say you know if you've lived in this postcode for five ten years, um, you can access your super. Uh, at, at this age, and I think that really removes the the race element um, from it. So, yeah, that, that's kind of a concept that I've toyed with, and I think that's got to be one of the first parts, right? Because that's that's the attractive part of superannuation. That's how it's pitched. It's for a quality retirement. It's it's saving for retirement, and if you don't get to access it during that time, then it's, it's just going to be a disengagement um, throughout the entire entire period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, super funds can't mandate legislation, but can you provide examples of the actions they can and should take to support their Indigenous members and actively contribute to improving outcomes for the communities? Yeah, I, I think they've got a, a, a platform uh, and authority on that platform because uh, they're large, they're significant player in the, the financial markets in Australia. They can certainly, um, you know, do a, do a bit of engagement and consultation. Um, understand what the community want, and then uh, potentially amplify those voices through their channels and their, um, I guess, their authority to talk. Uh, so putting pressure on um, governments or just making it notable in the industry that, for example, you know, the preservation age of life expectancy is why Aboriginal people are disengaged. And, you know, if we've got the top 10, 20 super funds all on that one page, I think that becomes much more significant and much more meaningful. And and for those organisations, that's not a huge output. That's not, you know, something that requires years and years of planning or recruiting or anything. It's a consultation process and then leveraging current channels. The other aspect that super funds have the opportunity to influence is really around that investment space. Um, so when companies aren't acting in the best interest of First Nations people, you know, building a Dan Murphy's on a dry community or near a dry community, for example, and you're a super fund and, you know, eight, nine, ten percent of your holdings are with that organization, uh, that company that's listed on the market that's building that. Um, 
as a shareholder, you, you have a lot of power to persuade uh, management and ultimately the board whether that's the right decision or not. So looking at it from that aspect, I think there's a lot of opportunity and, and a lot of power that super funds have to um, you know, support First Nations people. Yeah, definitely. Those are some really good takeaways. Looking at financial literacy as a whole, First Nations Foundation has identified that 48% of Indigenous Australians are living with financial stress. And you've previously said it's much deeper than just trying to fix a problem at the top. Actually, there's a long history of Indigenous people not being authorised to manage their own funds. They've been cut off from employment opportunities, business opportunities and education. Another really important point you made is within certain communities, there isn't always someone who is a point person that is there to openly discuss financial matters. So how does First Nations Foundation look to address these gaps? And are there any others you've identified? Yeah, so the the thing that makes our sessions different is that we don't even talk about money or numbers or anything uh, for the first hour. Uh, All our trainers are Aboriginal uh, or Torres Strait Islander and all our trainings being created uh, by Indigenous people. And the first hour is is really a healing session where we talk about what it was like to grow up um, as Indigenous, uh, our perceptions of money, what money was like around the house. And then we go into some of the historical elements uh, where certainly our our grandparents or great grandparents um, have experienced some of the uh, the racism and, and segregation, whether that's being placed on missions or reserves, um, where Aboriginal people were uh, working but they were paid in rations. You know things like alcohol, tobacco, blankets, flour, sugar, tea. Uh, so there's no real kind of financial management available for that. Um, we have a look at the stolen wages, where Aboriginal people again were working and they were told that the government would hold their wages in trust and, and paid at a later date, uh, which they never were. Uh, more recently, we have the cashless debit card um, where 80% of the uh, income is placed on a card and it's only allowed to be used at certain areas and the other 20% is is for you to use. So we've got this history where we've never been able to manage our own money and, and it's quite new um, for us. Even when we were getting employment and jobs there were jobs where it was really just enough to kind of buy a bit of food cover the rent and and that's about it there's no managing surpluses or investing or rainy day funds or anything like that so we find that when we go through that and we spell it out uh people are almost relieved they they feel that they're almost bad with money because they're they're aboriginal but it's just this whole historical uh occurrences that have led us to uh not be that great with money because you know, we, we don't have anyone to kind of go to or we've never been taught or, or never learn it. So um, that's where we really fit in is doing that element. And then we kick off and go through our, um, yeah, our financial literacy training. Well, considering that, how can institutions interested in promoting financial literacy and wellbeing education within Indigenous communities offer their assistance? I think partnership is the key and, and whether it's with my organisation uh, or it's specific to a local area that has the expertise because it, it, finance and wealth acquisition or asset acquisition, it's not the key driver 
to Aboriginal communities. We're, we're much more about the we before me. You know, how can we take this money and how can we help family and community and build infrastructure and then look after myself? Whereas you find a lot of financial institutes, they probably focus on that individual. You know, a lot of the marketing messages, look after your own retirement, build wealth for yourself, uh, which works for non-Indigenous population, but they're going to miss the mark if they take that approach out to community. So I think um, they'll have the infrastructure, they'll have the resources, both financial, uh, technical and human, uh, but partnering with the right uh, Aboriginal organisation, I think will just be the sort of cream on the top that'll make, make things a lot more effective. Can you share with us what First Nations Foundation is doing in this space? I know you're involved in training institutions and organisations to better deliver financial programs within Indigenous communities. So can you run us through that? Yeah, so we, we kind of have two sort of approaches. So we do our financial education sessions, um, usually online via Zoom or Teams, and that works pretty much in an urban kind of setting. Um, people jump on, go through and complete that. Once we go regional remote, that's when we do more of the face-to-face stuff and, and things that are a bit more bespoke to that area. Um, things like, you know, payday lenders, um, door-to-door salesmen, buying lemon cars. We focus on those topics for those specific areas. But the other part that we do is, is equally important is we educate the financial service sector. So we have a culture and money training and we train, um, you know, we've trained banks, we've trained government departments and we talk about some of these things, how Aboriginal people perceive money, talk about our culture and talk about ways that you can connect um, your products and services with First Nations people. So it's not, we're not just going out to the community and saying, hey, this is how you need to do it. It's the, um, the non-Indigenous way of doing it and it's time you get up to speed. We go out to um, financial sector and say, this is how community like um, connecting and receiving funds or receiving products um, and kind of bringing the two together to, to a bit of a middle ground. With all that in mind and following our discussion, it seems modern day Australia's journey toward reconciliation is at constant odds with these gaps in equality, which kind of brings me to my last question. Before we go, I really want to touch on one very important subject, and that's the voice to Parliament. There is so much confusion and misinformation, and I'll go as far as to say fear in being on the wrong side of such an important moment in history. Where does First Nations Foundation stand on this and why? Yeah, so we're very much uh, in support uh, of the voice and, and the three aspects, uh, uh, the truth-telling, the voice to Parliament, and the establishment of a Macarada Commission. I think. Um, it, it, it's something that's started with, with a lot of simplicity to it. You know, do First Nations people deserve a voice to Parliament? And then it has just really escalated from there into all these other, I guess, hypothetical situations that don't have a lot of truth or a, a lot of probability to it. And and even some of our community say, you know, it's not our voice. We haven't been consulted with. We haven't been talked to. The concept that I see the way it's worked is is we had the 250 delegates in Uluru signing that statement, and that's to that was to generally get the sentiment um, from Aboriginal people. Uh, is this something that we want? Um, and, and that was a vastly majority said yes. And then from there, the way I see the concept of working is you know whether it's 25 people or you know two from each state and territory and some from the Torres Strait Islands. They're going to be the voice to parliament. There's going to be uh, various issues. And we can take Alice Springs as an example because that's been in the media the last six months. My understanding is they'd send representatives from that group to consult 
on the ground with locals in going through that cultural protocol way, they'll go back to the to the rest of the voice, the, the rest of the group, uh, make their recommendations, and then the chair of the group will then make their recommendations to parliament based on that engagement. That's how I see it working. Um, some of the things that get mixed up and confused is that, you know, there's 25 people that are going to sit in an office somewhere in Canberra and try to come up with solutions for Alice Springs. Um, that's, that's not how we operate um, from a cultural protocol perspective. Then the other aspect is around uh, what's happening with treaty and what's going to um, happen with reparations and, you know, the concept of paying the rent and things like that. I- I'm not confident that a treaty, a national treaty, it exists in Australia. We, we currently have uh, three, maybe four uh, states and even specific areas in those states that have a treaty or a version of that. Um, so th- they're currently going ahead at the moment. I think Queensland is settled on a two, $300 million um, kind of treaty settlement arrangement. Part of the treaty for the Makarata Commission is, I think, providing a bit of guidelines and support because you're dealing with you know, governments and you're negotiating and we're talking massive numbers and pulling people that may not have that experience, uh, but really strong in their community knowledge, um, you know, pulling them together and giving them support at maybe that national voice level. I think that's where the, um, the aspect will come from in terms of the treaty aspect. Thank you so much, Phil, for running us through that. I really appreciate your insights today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me in. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 